Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and coming to us from the Eagle's Nest, Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Michael. How are you today? 10 out of 10. How are you? I'm really good. Uh, I had uh, a nice... It's a smoky day here in Vancouver. Is it smoky where you are? It was yesterday, but it isn't so much today. It was a little more clear today than it was yesterday. I could smell the wood smoke yesterday. and Yeah, so for people who are living under a rock and not seeing the news... Uh... British Columbia is on fire right now. Yeah, as of this recording. Hopefully by the time you hear it in a few weeks, it'll be out. And clear skies. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Patine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. This episode, we venture into a controversial and tragic chapter of Canada's legal history. It intertwines with public health, personal relationships, and the weight of the law. We're talking about the history of HIV non-disclosure cases in Canada. Part of our journey takes us to the early 2000s, zeroing in on Johnson Aziga, a Ugandan-born Canadian resident. His name would become synonymous with a landmark legal battle challenging the boundaries of consent, deception, and responsibility. Aziga was diagnosed with HIV in 1996, but his numerous subsequent relationships would cast him into the national spotlight. Two women specifically would become central to this story, 
both entered into relationships with Aziga, and HIV-related complications tragically took both their lives. The women's names are protected under publication bans, so we can't speak to their biographies. Regardless, their untimely deaths would raise a storm of questions about trust, disclosure, and the duty one owes to their intimate partners. Aziga was convicted of murder and deemed a dangerous offender, but argued that his race and status as an immigrant weighed against him. In 2023, the murder convictions were overturned and replaced with manslaughter convictions substituted in their place. Note, in this podcast, the names of survivors will be kept confidential and initials or aliases will be used instead. This is Dark Poutine, Episode 283, Private Acts and Public Health. HIV non-disclosure in Canada. HIV, or the human immunodeficiency virus, is believed to have transitioned to humans from non-human primates in Central and West Africa during the 20th century. By the 1980s, the virus had spread globally, leading to a new and deadly disease known as AIDS. Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. The first recognized instances of AIDS in North America came in the early 1980s, marking the beginning of a global health crisis. In 1982, Canada diagnosed its first cases, predominantly among gay men. However, the virus didn't remain confined to one group. It soon affected various populations, including heterosexuals, intravenous drug users, and those receiving blood transfusions. A particularly bleak episode in Canada's history with HIV was the tainted blood scandal during the 1980s. This tragedy saw thousands of Canadians infected with HIV and hepatitis C due to contaminated blood products. The aftermath was profound, leading to the Creever Commission, a public inquiry that brought about significant reforms in Canada's blood donation and screening systems. We are planning a future episode on the tainted blood scandal. The initial response to the HIV and AIDS crisis in Canada was marked by widespread fear. Due to disinformation and prejudice, AIDS was labeled a gay disease, leading to heightened stigma and discrimination, especially targeting the LGBTQ2S community and other marginalized groups. As the disease was primarily associated with gay men, it was initially termed gay-related immune deficiency, GRID. This association had profound social and political implications for the gay community. The epidemic intensified existing prejudices and stigmas against gay men. Many faced discrimination in healthcare settings, workplaces, and within their communities. The media often portrayed AIDS as a gay plague, further marginalizing a vulnerable community. This vilification perpetuated stereotypes and contributed to a climate of fear and misunderstanding. Many gay men lived in the shadow of the disease, constantly fearing for their lives and the lives of their loved ones. The community was hit hard, with many losing friends and partners quickly to the disease. Yeah, and, and let's be clear here. It wasn't some just marginalization. When it was believed that only gay men were getting AIDS, it was actually celebrated by many people. Right. On more than one occasion, I had homophobes say to me, what does AIDS stand for? Adios infected dick sucker. So it was ugly and, and many people were horrible. And uh, as a gay man, I lived through this crap. 
However, the crisis also galvanized the gay community in Canada. Grassroots organizations and advocacy groups emerged dedicated to providing support, education, and resources related to HIV-AIDS. Groups like the AIDS Committee of Toronto, ACT, and the Canadian AIDS Society played pivotal roles in raising awareness, advocating for research funding, and fighting against discrimination. The epidemic also fostered a sense of unity and resilience within the community. Pride parades and other LGBTQ plus events began incorporating tributes to those lost to AIDS and the community rallied together to support one another. I actually um, participated in this to a degree. So the Canadian AIDS Society was formed as a registered charity in 1988. And I was working for an ad agency then and we decided to do pro bono work for them. As one of the agency owners was gay, and so was I, we thought we'd, we'd help out. And I actually helped create the first branding for the Canadian AIDS Society. Very cool. And in meetings with them, I got the uh, insight that a lot of people in Canada thought that AIDS was well-funded mm. because of news from America, things like Elizabeth Taylor raising money. But the problem was it was all-American fundraising for the American AIDS issue. Right? Right. But Canada was underfunded, so I actually came up with the first tagline of uh, the Canadian AIDS Society, which was, Canada has AIDS, mm. to underscore that it was here and that here we needed to get support and help. It was quite provocative at the time, and they used it for a few years, but I was kind, yeah. of, pr I was kind of proud of that. I remember that, actually. Yeah, so that was me. Cool. And just an example of, you know, we're going to talk about London, Ontario a little bit in this episode. So I was actually, I set up a booth at a business fair, if you will, to try to raise uh, money uh, for the Canadian Aid Society from business people that were at this event. And one business leader I won't name her, I know her name, actually walked up to me and said, and this is late 80s, early 90s, mm -hmm. walked up and asked me why I was putting effort behind raising money for AIDS instead of other charities, because I should be supporting worthwhile ones, not supporting homosexual lifestyles. Oh, what a nice lady. Yeah. Is she still a prominent business person? Uh, I think she's probably dead. Huh. Anyway. By the 1990s, the narrative began to shift with the advent of antiretroviral therapies and a better understanding of the disease. While the number of new infections began to decline, the scars of the previous decade ran deep. Many people lost friends and family members during the height of the crisis. My family was affected as well. My second cousin, who I never met, died of an AIDS-related illness. You may have heard of him. Robert Rob McCall, born on September 14, 1958 in Halifax, was a celebrated Canadian figure skater renowned for his achievements in ice dance. Alongside his partner, Tracy Wilson, Rob McCall was a part of one of Canada's premier ice dance teams. Their dynamic performances and innovative routines won them multiple national titles and endeared them to fans worldwide. Their pinnacle achievement came during the 1988 Calgary Winter Olympics, where they clinched a bronze medal, marking Canada's first Olympic medal in ice dance. Following their illustrious amateur career, the duo transitioned to professional figure skating, continuing to charm audiences with their captivating routines. 
Tragically, on November 15, 1991, Rob passed away at 33 after a long battle with AIDS-related complications. His untimely death not only spotlighted the AIDS epidemic, but also marked a profound loss for the figure skating community in Canada at large. Rob's death brought attention to the AIDS epidemic, and he was one of the first prominent athletes to die from the disease. Rob's enduring legacy continues to inspire and influence future generations of skaters. How did your family deal with it, Mike? There wasn't a lot of talk about it. I heard from my cousins how horrible Rob's last days were, as whatever was going on with him was a type of lymphoma that metastasized to his brain. Yeah. So he didn't know where he was or who he was, essentially, at the end. It was all about how horrible it was. Yeah. You know, it was a loss for the family. There was yeah. no whispered things about his sexuality or any of that kind of stuff that I heard, anyway. Okay. Today, while challenges persist, HIV has transitioned from a fatal diagnosis to a chronic, manageable condition for many individuals. According to the Canadian AIDS Treatment Information Exchange, in Canada, HIV continues to be a significant public health concern. As of 2020, the Public Health Agency of Canada estimated that approximately 62,790 Canadians were living with HIV. Of these individuals, 6,590 were unaware of their HIV-positive status. 2020 saw 1,520 new HIV infections, marking a slight decrease from 2018. This decline might be attributed to the reduced HIV testing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Notably, 43.8% of these new infections were among gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. Additionally, 33.6% were among heterosexual individuals and 19.8% were people who injected drugs. The joint United Nations Program on HIV-AIDS and the World Health Organization have set ambitious targets to eliminate AIDS by 2030, which Canada has endorsed. The strategy aims to diagnose 90% of all HIV-positive persons, provide antiretroviral therapy for 90% of those diagnosed, and achieve viral suppression for 90% of those treated by 2020. By 2025, these targets are set to increase to 95%. In terms of progress, Canada has made significant strides. By 2020, 90% of Canadians with HIV were diagnosed, 87% of those diagnosed were on treatment, and 95% of those on treatment had achieved viral suppression. Diving deeper into specific populations, gay men remain the most affected group with 33,335 living with HIV in 2020, accounting for 53.1% of all HIV cases in Canada. Those who acquired HIV through heterosexual transmission make up 32.8%, while Indigenous people accounted for 10.3% of all cases and females comprised 24.6%. People who inject drugs represented 16.1% of all cases. In federal correctional facilities, 0.92% of the inmates had HIV in 2020, and in 2021, there was a 5% increase in new HIV diagnoses compared to 2020, with 1,722 new cases reported. This data emphasizes the ongoing need for HIV prevention, testing, and treatment efforts nationwide. And Matthew, you helped me to sort of reorganize how we talked about these percentages and where we actually put the people who we talked about, how important it was 
So when you did your research, I'm, I'm assuming that you found these numbers and you kind of put them in the order in the way that you found them. I did, yeah. The problem I constantly find when you read numbers like this in the media is that they do gay men and then immediately talk HIV drug users mm -hmm. and then talk about straight people like, okay, let, let's going to put the immoral ones at the front, right? even though people who inject drugs are only 16.1%. Right. They kind of like do the gays and the HIV drug users and then later on talk about straight people that are actually 32.8%. Right. So it, it it's just this weird thing I see in the, the media where you, you get you get sort of gays and HIV drugs, like this link that happens that annoys the hell out of me. Well, it should. Yeah. You pointing that out to me taught me something to look <laughs> yeah. when I'm researching because now I'll, when I'm looking at numbers, when I'm looking at statistics, sometimes there is an actual reason why people put certain statistics together like yeah. they do. Yeah. It was fascinating when you brought that up. As the epidemic evolved and awareness grew, so did the complexities surrounding the rights and responsibilities of those living with the virus. The rise in HIV cases inevitably led to debates about personal and public safety, ethics, and the boundaries of individual rights. One of the most contentious issues from this discourse was the legal implications of non-disclosure of one's HIV status. This matter raised questions about personal autonomy and privacy and the broader societal implications of trust, responsibility, and the legal system's role in mediating public health concerns. Charles Sinyonga, a Ugandan immigrant residing in London, Ontario, is the first Canadian to face charges for not revealing his HIV status to a sexual partner. He was accused of aggravated assault following three sexual incidents in the late 1980s. And it's not surprising that, that this case, first case was in London. So, um, so I was there at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Gay man. London in the 80s and, and 90s was a horribly homophobic, racist town. And if you live there at the time and disagree, you know what? You ain't black and you ain't gay, I can promise you that, because it, you would have experienced it. Yeah. The crux of the Senyonga case revolved around consent and awareness. Before this case, there was R versus Lee, where a bisexual man had relations with a woman without disclosing his potential HIV exposure. The court's decision in R versus Lee set a precedent suggesting that if one knows they are HIV positive, they must disclose it. Senyonga, aware of his HIV status, was advised against sexual activity in 1990, Despite warnings, Senyonga continued relations claiming women pursued him. At his trial, he claimed ignorance of his HIV status during these encounters, attributing it to a mental disorder. However, this claim was contested by expert witnesses. The article African Immigrant Damnation Syndrome, the case of Charles Senyonga by James Miller, featured in the Sexuality Research and Social Policy Journal of NSRC in June 2005, delves into the racial and heterosexist undertones of the AIDS epidemic in Canada during the early 1990s, specifically regarding Charles Senyonga's case. In the late 1980s, the term AIDS criminal was associated with figures like Ronald Reagan, Activists worked hard to challenge the binary perception of AIDS patients as either innocent victims or guilty carriers. Despite these efforts, the binary persisted, especially in legal context. Charles Senyonga became a central figure in this narrative. His story exemplifies the deep-rooted racial and sexual biases of the time. 
Charleston Yonga's color was highlighted as he was portrayed as a symbol of African AIDS in media, emphasizing the racial undertones of the discourse. The media's portrayal of Senyonga highlighted the racial and heterosexist narratives prevalent during the AIDS epidemic. Charles Senyonga was born in Uganda in 1957. He grew up in a Catholic household and was educated in English, distancing himself from local cultural practices. He later became involved in student politics against President Milton Obote's regime, leading to his escape to Kenya. In the early 1980s, Senyonga moved to Canada, pursuing political science and later opening an African artifact shop in London, Ontario. However, his life took a controversial turn when he was diagnosed with a particularly aggressive strain of HIV. In 1989, after two HIV-positive women identified Senyonga as their sexual contact, he was urged to get tested and was subsequently diagnosed with HIV. Despite recommendations for abstinence or safer sex, Senyonga continued his sexual activities. In 1990, a health order was issued prohibiting him from engaging in specific sexual acts. However, he defied this order, leading to further legal actions and media attention. The media played a significant role in Senyonga's portrayal, emphasizing his African background and linking it to the AIDS epidemic. This narrative further perpetuated racial biases and stigmatized Senyonga, affecting his personal and professional life in London. Yeah, and again, I was living there. I, I remember this, right? Yeah. 100% the fact that he was black from Africa, having sex with white women, created much more of a push to go after him. Mm. Uh, the, the media totally focused on it. Yeah. And the, the conversations that I overheard in public you know, was about that African, um, often using a different word mm. uh, that I heard many times. And um, I love looking at statistics because statistics point out truth. You know, we, yeah. can, we can debate things, but here's an interesting fact. 52% of straight men that have been charged as HIV criminals are black, even though they only represent 6% of the HIV-positive male population in Canada. Interesting. When you see numbers like that, you go, yeah, there's a problem. The fact is, you know, it, this is a virus. Yeah. Right? But because it happens through sexual transmission, some make this virus or medical condition uh, leverage for what they think is moral or not. Right. They, they leverage it for racist, homophobic, or, or religious ends. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and oh, I'm going to be blunt. When it was the gays, hey, they deserved it. Nothing was done. Right. Then it was about immigrants. Who cares, people thought. When you said, hey, they deserved it, what you were referring to was the sentiment of some people. Yeah, of course. But now that straight white women are getting infected, which is horrible, anyone getting infected is horrible, then it becomes an issue and it's time to criminalize it, right? Right. It's the whole idea that we see in true crime. People of color being murdered get less attention than pretty white girls with blonde hair and blue eyes. Yeah, and... At, Mike, you and I've covered many stories of pretty white girls with blonde hair and blue eyes, and it's right. tragic and it's horrible. We're talking about we're talking about statistics here, mm -hmm. and and what society focuses on. Right? There's a great quote from Tim McCaskill uh, from AIDS Action Now. He said, uh, "The trope of the sexually 
predatory, diseased black immigrant helped marshal racism to harden public opinion behind HIV criminalization. I've seen that in a, a lot of the articles that I read around the time about Senyanga that are really like, what are you talking about? Like, the sex drive of the black male is so much higher than the... What? Ridiculous. <laughs> it, it is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Show me the numbers, and guess what? They don't exist. You know what? In my day, when I was young, Mike... I'll tell you one thing. Nobody had a bigger sex drive than me. <laughs> yeah. This stuff's ridiculous. And and the people who, like, don't, who are like, this isn't true. Like, you know, the focus isn't on, you know, my, it is. It is. just These are the people who will say all lives uh, rather than black lives matter. It's it's exactly that. It's, it's just, it's putting your head in the sand. Yeah. The ethical debate intensified. Should individuals who knowingly transmit HIV be charged with aggravated assault? According to the criminal code, force in a non-consensual situation is required for an aggravated assault charge. In Senyonga's case, all relations were consensual, making the charge complex. The court suggested that the issue was more a matter of public policy than criminal law. The question arose, should transmitting HIV be equated with murder? Senyonga's actions, while reckless, didn't display intent to kill. He didn't view HIV as a death sentence. While he could have faced criminal negligence convictions, he passed away before a verdict. Next came R. V. Querrier, a landmark Supreme Court of Canada. Case decided in September 1998 that addressed the criminal implications of non-disclosure of HIV-positive status before engaging in sexual activity. The case revolved around Henry Gerard Querrier, who was charged with aggravated assault for having unprotected relations without informing his partners of his HIV status. In 1992, Querrier was informed by a health professional that he had tested positive for HIV. He was advised to practice safe sex using condoms and to tell his partners about his condition. However, Querrier expressed concerns about revealing his status in his tight-knit community. Shortly after, he started a relationship with K.M., and they frequently had unprotected intercourse. During a conversation about sexually transmitted infections, Querrier misled K.M. by referencing an older HIV-negative test and omitting his recent positive result. K.M. knew the general risks of unprotected sex, but Querrier did not disclose his HIV status. A few months into their relationship, both underwent HIV testing. Querrier's result was positive, while KM's was negative. Despite being informed about the risks, they continued their unprotected sexual relationship for over a year. KM later stated that her love for Querrier influenced her decisions. The belief that she might already be infected since they had unprotected sex, and her assertion that she wouldn't have engaged in any sexual activity with him had she known about his HIV status from the beginning. KM remained HIV negative. Subsequently, Querrier began a relationship with BH. After their initial intimate encounter, BH expressed her concerns about diseases, though she didn't specify HIV. Querrier again chose not to disclose his HIV status. They had around 10 intimate encounters, with approximately half being unprotected. Upon discovering Querrier's HIV status, BH confronted him. He expressed regret for not informing her earlier. Fortunately, 
BH did not contract the virus. Couerier was charged with aggravated assault for having unprotected sexual relations with two women without informing them of his HIV-positive status. The Supreme Court determined that if sexual activity poses a significant risk of serious bodily harm, the HIV-positive individual must disclose their status. If they fail to do so, their act might be considered fraud, rendering the consensual act an assault under Canadian criminal law. Yeah, so so this one I find very problematic. Yeah. Nobody became HIV positive. He knew he didn't say, but nobody nobody became HIV positive. Right. His partners, while not knowing that he was HIV positive at first, and they should have, he should have told them, they chose to have unprotected sex in a world where they know HIV, potential pregnancy, other diseases are out there. Right. Yeah. So there is a level. So, and I'm not. I'm not going to poo-poo any victims in this story at all. Right. Right. Because it's hard and it's complex. But this is more of a general sense. Right. Right. It is if nobody actually got hurt, like nobody got HIV, but the government, the media, the police, the courts are getting involved in this. Mm-hmm. Nobody got HIV. Yeah. Where are you putting your efforts? Yeah. And I'm I'm beginning to feel. I think this case underlies the hysteria behind this. Yep, I agree. The decision highlighted the delicate balance between individual rights and public health concerns. It underscored the criminal law's role in deterring individuals from endangering others, and emphasized the importance of protecting the public. Among other organizations, the Canadian HIV-AIDS Legal Network intervened in the R.V. Querrier case, highlighting concerns. They warned that criminalizing HIV status non-disclosure might deter testing, strain doctor-patient relationships, and give a false sense of security about HIV risks. The court didn't mandate proof that the accused knew protective measures. Many experts felt the decision misapplied criminal law to a public health issue. The report, After Querrier, by Richard Elliott, for the Canadian HIV-AIDS Legal Network, advised against criminal prosecutions for HIV-positive individuals unless there's evidence of non-disclosure during high-risk activities, e.g. unprotected vaginal or anal intercourse. It emphasized clarity in educational materials about potential criminal liabilities for non-disclosure during such activities. The report also highlighted ambiguities in the law regarding low-risk activities, like unprotected oral sex or intercourse with condom use, and suggested no need for disclosure in negligible risk or no-risk scenarios. After a break, we'll learn of the complex events surrounding Johnson Aziga that led to the deaths of two women. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts so far? <laughs> oh, dear. You're, you're laughing because you, you know how angry I'm getting over this. Matthew said, before we started this show, he did the first half. He, he did all his Notes. interjections for the first half, but he was too upset, too angry to do the second half without me helping him. <laughs> so, and, and I, th- I, I think what it gets down to is this, Mike, right? Mm-hmm. especially the next one, case we're talking about here. Johnson this, Aziga, yes. Right. Um, 
it's a it's a particularly egregious case. It is. Yep. And as horrible as it is, we have to be very careful. And and I think that's the purpose of this episode in a way is these broad uh harsh laws. Yeah. That Canada has Canada has some of the harshest HIV criminalization in the world. People poo-poo Canada for being too gentle a lot of times, but guess what? We have the harshest HIV criminalization in the world mm -hmm. that's um, not science-based. It's out of fear. It's out of knee-jerk reaction. So while we're talking about this case and about a person that was a horrible person, right, in a, mm -hmm. lot, of, in a lot of ways, you know, I need to point out things around personal responsibility, burden of proof, role of government, police, courts, and the sex lives of individuals, right? Mm -hmm. All these things have to be considered, right? And again, yeah. I'm not going after any victims in any of these cases, but if, if you're out there and you don't want to get HIV, uh, well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Yes, we will. Yeah. Johnson Aziga was born in 1956 in Uganda and migrated to Canada where he found employment at the Ontario Ministry of the Attorney General. He resided in Hamilton, was married, and was a father to three children. In December 1996, Mr. Aziga faced health challenges, specifically persistent and recurring pneumonia. His primary care physician referred him to a specialist for further examination. The specialist, suspecting a deeper underlying issue, ordered an HIV test. The results confirmed that Mr. Aziga was indeed HIV positive. This diagnosis was a significant turning point in his life. Recognizing this diagnosis's implications, Mr. Aziga and his wife underwent counseling sessions to educate them about safer sex practices, the risks associated with HIV, and the importance of preventing its transmission. However, personal challenges ensued, and by 1998, Mr. Aziga's marriage had broken down leading to a separation from his wife. This change in his marital status marked the beginning of a series of events that would later become legally significant. From 1997, he was consistently advised at an immunology clinic about the risks of transmitting HIV through unprotected sex, the dangers of AIDS, and his legal duty to inform potential partners of his status before engaging in sexual activity. While he took medication for his health, he refused antiretroviral therapy, ART, which could have reduced his contagion level, citing various reasons, including potential side effects, costs, and privacy concerns. Even when offered ART for free, he declined. His viral load, indicating his infectiousness, remained moderate until 2001, but increased in 2002 and 2003. Between May 2000 and August 2003, Mr. Aziga had intimate relationships with 11 individuals. In these relationships, he engaged in unprotected sexual intercourse without informing his partners of his HIV-positive status. The consequences of his actions were severe. Two of these individuals tragically succumbed to complications related to HIV, five others contracted the virus, and the remaining four, while not infected, were exposed to the significant risk of contracting the virus you wanted to talk about some ways to go about not having to go through this amount of fear. Yes. Yeah. And that kind of thing. Ways that we can take our own uh, lives essentially into our own hands. 
Yes. Not relying on someone else to tell us about their sexual history or any of those kind of things. I mean, I will ask. I would ask. But maybe that person will lie. Not everybody is an honest person. So what can I do to prevent having to go through any of this that these poor people went through? What can I do? Well, the, the first thing is maybe not you. Who knows? Maybe I, but somebody else is entering your body. Right. During sex, if you're the bottom or if whatever. What, right? Okay. It's your body. It's your responsibility to make sure you understand risks, to understand the level of risk you're willing to take. There's ways you can do this. Open conversations. Mm-hmm first and that's the best way of doing it however somebody who might not know they're hiv positive can be or have another disease so there's always a risk so condoms Mm -hmm. right or prep prep is something that not everybody in our audience is going to be familiar with so i'm going to talk about a bit about what it is and so PrEP is a daily pill that's 99% effective at preventing the transmission of HIV. So that's pretty high. That's like birth control pill uh, high. PrEP is approved in Canada and requires a prescription. The two forms of PrEP are Truvada and Descovy. Only 1% to 10% of patients on PrEP experience side effects, and most symptoms tend to go away within 1% to 2 weeks naturally. And PrEP only protects against HIV not other sexually transmitted infections, STIs, like uh, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, or hepatitis. So if you don't want those, wear a condom as well. Right. So so PrEP started in Vancouver, actually. Okay. Somebody looked up and realized that HIV medication that they're using to, to lower viral load, it, it's called viral load, mm-hmm. actually could be given to people before they get it and stop it. <laughs> so there's like, I think that, that aha moment of, oh my God, we can actually give this to people who are at high risk uh, in order to stop people from getting it in the first place, not just use the drug to manage manage the, the virus. Right. Um, so, so condoms and prep, you know, between those two things, um, or doing both, right. Uh, you, you have, uh, pretty ironclad, uh, protection against, uh, getting HIV. Well, there you go. It's really interesting. So is that a common thing that people use now? Most gay men I know mm-hmm. use prep. Well, there you go. Because it affected the gay community so much, HIV and AIDS, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's like a pill that, that they take. It's just a regular part of daily routine. In October 2002, public health officials approached Johnson Aziga. They had been alerted to his activities because an individual recently diagnosed as HIV positive had identified him as a previous sexual partner. When confronted, Mr. Aziga acknowledged some of his actions admitting to unprotected sexual encounters without disclosing his HIV status. However, the evidence presented by the victim suggested that Aziga had been more sexually active than he had admitted to the officials. Recognizing the public health risk, on October 17, 2002, authorities served Mr. Aziga with a Section 22 order under the Health Protection and Promotion Act. This order had specific mandates. Mr. Aziga was to inform any potential sexual partners of his HIV status, always use protection during sexual activities, and provide the health department with a comprehensive list of all his sexual partners since his diagnosis in 1996. 
Over the next few months, public health officials took proactive steps to ensure Mr. Aziga understood the gravity of his situation. He was enrolled in multiple counseling sessions where he was educated about the responsibilities of an HIV-positive individual, the risks associated with the virus, and the importance of full disclosure. Despite these efforts, Aziga was not cooperative. He failed to provide a complete list of his sexual partners, leaving any of them in the dark about their potential exposure to the virus. I've got written here, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Right. There's no amount of education that you can give somebody if they're not willing to move forward on what you're teaching them. Yeah, and and I think maybe it's one of these things where I would imagine, right, like as a black man with African heritage, there would have been probably, so so there's already this whole like, it's it's a gay virus, right? Yeah. So that comes in. So, so was it even that in two thousand three though? When when Aziga was? Oh yeah, it still yeah. is, dude. Okay, <laughs> it still is, right? Okay. And um, I can imagine him intellectually knowing, but somehow emotionally blocking the entire thing. I would okay. guess. But the flip side of that is, the stakes are too high to do that. Right. So he, so essentially what it is, is a person who acquires this, they have to go through all the levels of essentially grieving their past life. And one of those is acceptance that you actually have this thing. Yeah. And I think maybe, maybe there's a bit of that there, but the flip side, the flip side of this is I think this guy's a bit of a narcissist. Yeah. And he's not listening or caring. So, you know, we're going to talk about, about what he was, what he was charged and jailed with and, 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 and then what it was lowered to. Um, but it, you know, this is, it's so egregious, this one that I'm not going to give him a lot of leeway. Right. Because he just in the end didn't care enough about other people. Yeah, exactly. That's the way I feel about this person. In April, 2003, another alarming event occurred. A newly diagnosed HIV-positive individual once again identified Mr. Aziga as a previous sexual contact. Despite the repeated warnings and the gravity of the situation, Mr. Aziga continued withholding information about several of his partners. The situation escalated on August 21, 2003, when Mr. Aziga was served with a court order which essentially reinforced the mandates of the previous legal order. Authorities arrested him on August 30, 2003. At the time of his arrest, one of his victims, who was still unaware of her HIV-positive status, was at Aziga's residence. Seven of the women he had relationships with were found to be HIV-positive. Expert experience showed that these women were infected with a rare subtype of HIV similar to Mr. Aziga's. While the evidence couldn't directly prove Mr. Aziga had infected them, it indicated they shared a common virus strain. During his trial, the defense didn't dispute Mr. Aziga's actions or failure to disclose his HIV status. Instead, they argued that the prosecution couldn't prove Mr. Aziga was the source of the infections or that he had the intent required for a murder charge. The defense also questioned the adequacy of the prosecution's case and the investigation's competence. Johnson didn't testify. Yeah. So in this situation, they tested for the same strain of the virus, didn't they? Yes. The problem with Canadian law right now and all these other cases that are being tried, they often don't even do that. Oh, wow. And even if it is the same strain, it doesn't mean it's from you. 
Right. So I have issues with the burden of proof on this, right? Like, okay. The last thing you want to do is slut shame or, or victim, victim blame. Right. Yeah. But in a case like this, it, you have to be like, well, did it really come from him? And, and I, I don't know sort of what was, what was asked in, in the court, but the burden of proof is the burden of proof. Yeah. And I don't see how they can necessarily prove anything here. Well, they did prove it legally at that point, at least. Johnson Izigo was convicted in April 2009 on two charges of first-degree murder, ten charges of aggravated sexual assault, and one charge of attempted aggravated assault. Due to Izigo's apparent lack of concern and unwillingness to take responsibility, the Crown initiated a dangerous offender application against Izigo to keep him behind bars indefinitely. On the initial day of the dangerous offender hearing, psychiatrist Dr. Philip Klassen shared a report. Aziga linked his challenges to being born with one undescended testicle. This condition led him to consistently conceal personal sexual details, even from his wife and long-term girlfriend. His fear of rejection was the primary reason, he cited, for not revealing his HIV status. Justice Lofchik listened to first-hand accounts from victims and their family members detailing the profound impact of the events on their lives. Here's a summary of their testimonies. A. A woman known only as S.B. In a video statement from November 19, 2003, S.B. spoke about the profound physical, emotional, and mental toll her HIV infection took on her. She was deeply affected by the knowledge that her lymphoma was terminal, leading to severe depression, especially with the realization that she would not witness her grandson's growth. In her statement from July 10, 2009, SB's daughter expressed her deep mistrust toward others stemming from her mother's deception and subsequent HIV infection by Johnson Aziga. She recounted the heart-wrenching experience of watching her mother's health deteriorate and eventually succumb to the disease. This trauma led her to suffer from depression, insomnia, and a reliance on medication for four years. Aziga and SB had unprotected sexual encounters, both oral and vaginal, between 35 and 45 times. Throughout their relationship, Aziga never disclosed his HIV-positive status to SB. She was diagnosed with HIV on June 18, 2002. SB died on December 7, 2003, due to malignant large-cell lymphoma complications. The next woman we know only by the initials H.C. H.C.'s niece submitted a statement detailing the shock and helplessness she felt upon discovering her aunt's HIV diagnosis in August 2003. She described the agonizing experience of witnessing her aunt's health decline as akin to a slow-motion murder. She also highlighted the loneliness, isolation, and societal stigma her aunt endured. H.C. and Aziga had unprotected sexual encounters around 15 to 20 times. During their final intimate encounter, H.C. described the experience as aggressive, leading to her bleeding. However, Aziga refuted this claim at the hearing. Throughout their relationship, he never disclosed his HIV-positive status to her. H.C. stated that had she known about his condition, she wouldn't have had unprotected intercourse with him, considering the nature of their relationship. H.C. later revealed to him that she tested positive for HIV on November 16, 2002. She passed away on May 19, 2004, with her death attributed to complications from HIV-related Burkitt's lymphoma. The next victim is victim H. 
This victim detailed the life-altering consequences of her HIV infection due to Aziga's actions. She spoke of emotional turmoil, including trust issues, feelings of isolation, depression, and insomnia. Physically, the infection led to severe health issues, including dental problems, migraines, medication side effects, and mobility issues due to foot sores. Victim J. In her statement, this victim emphasized the profound social isolation she experienced post-offense. She had become reclusive, avoiding social interactions, especially with men. The trauma was so intense that she once attempted suicide. The physical repercussions of her HIV infection include dental issues, weight loss, hair loss, and persistent skin sores. Victim F. This victim expressed that the offender's actions shattered her life. The weight of her HIV diagnosis felt like a dark secret leading to feelings of shame and contamination. The strain also affected her marriage, with her husband's children fearing for his health. She has grappled with depression, sleep disorders, and even a heart attack due to stress. Victim K. This victim felt numb after learning of her HIV-positive status on Valentine's Day in 2003. She was pregnant at the time, which added to her anxiety. The weight of keeping her status a secret from her family for over five years eventually led to a nervous breakdown. Victim C. This victim conveyed a sense of hopelessness in her statement, knowing that HIV would eventually claim her life. The disease has weakened her, changed her appearance, and affected her appetite. The emotional toll led her to relinquish custody of her son, and she now lives in a state of shame, humiliation, and isolation. Victim I. This victim expressed shock and fear upon learning of Aziga's arrest. The overwhelming fear of possibly being infected persisted, affecting her relationships and daily life. She has become mistrustful, often isolating herself, and struggles with feelings of anger, depression, and intimacy issues. Victim G. This victim's statement highlighted her deep-seated mistrust of people and her judgment. Despite undergoing multiple HIV tests and receiving negative results, she remained plagued by doubts. Her betrayal had led to feelings of violation and questioning of Johnson Aziga's sincerity. Victim E. Upon learning of Aziga's HIV status through the news, this victim was consumed by fear and anxiety. The waiting period for her HIV test results was agonizing. Even after testing negative, the trauma persisted, making public testimonies in court particularly challenging. The recurring theme throughout these testimonies was the profound psychological impact of Aziga's actions. Even those who tested negative for HIV grappled with the trauma and the lingering doubt about the accuracy of their results. I'm seeing these poor people that had to go through this, right? It's horrendous what they had to go through. And so I'm going to get on my soapbox and kind of go, you know, just from coming from a community where it affected so much. HIV is real, right? Mm -hmm. Look after yourselves out there. It's still out there. It's absolutely still out there. Just look after yourselves and take responsibility. The chances that somebody like this person is going to do the same thing it's probably pretty minuscule yeah but don't take that as a okay then i i don't need to take responsibility take it take it for yourself right take that responsibility educate yourself protect yourself to the level that you want to be protected there you go seeing a life behind bars was ahead of him johnson aziga testified at his dangerous offender hearing at the beginning of his testimony, Johnson read a pre-written statement, 
Most of his testimony centered around his life story, including his time in Africa and his personal journey with his HIV diagnosis. While he did touch upon the events leading to his convictions, he mainly discussed his reasons for not revealing his HIV status to the 11 women who became victims. During his testimony, he delved deep into his upbringing in Uganda, highlighting the privileges he enjoyed as the youngest male in his family. He recounted several traumatic events he witnessed in Uganda, such as student shootings, a rape incident, and instances where women were coerced into sexual relations without genuine consent. He emphasized the emotional toll these events took on him, making him feel powerless and helpless. When questioned about his relationships with students during his teaching stint in Nairobi, he differentiated them from the traumatic incidents he described earlier. He shared that condoms were not readily available in Uganda or Kenya. His first encounter with a condom was in Canada. He painted a picture of a conservative African culture where sex was taboo, not discussed even among friends. He mentioned his multiple relationships in Kenya and the prevalence of STDs like syphilis and gonorrhea. Under cross-examination, when questioned about not revealing his sexual partners in Nairobi were his students, he provided evasive answers suggesting that the doctors didn't want specifics and questioning why he would tell his probation officer. Johnson expressed deep distress upon discovering his HIV-positive status. He felt lifeless and constantly pondered how he might have contracted the virus, suggesting various possibilities. He also shared that during the offenses he was grappling with immense stress, loneliness, and depression. He listed several factors that hindered him from disclosing his HIV status, including cultural barriers and personal stresses. I'm hearing a lot of excuses. These aren't reasons to do something negative. They are excuses why you did something negative. It's not like you spilled milk, right? No. Like, or, or, or like broke a plate. You, you know, you were playing with people's lives here. Right. When you're dealing with people's lives like this, you can't use these sort of wishy-washy excuses of why you're not telling people. No, you can't. Because their, their safety outweighs that, for sure. When questioned about his non-disclosure to Hamilton Public Health, he cited limited knowledge and unreadiness as his reasons. He also preferred informing the women directly about his HIV status rather than having them hear it from public health. But he didn't let them know. Right. Here he is saying, well, I'd rather be the one to tell them. But, but he, you didn't. But he did not. <laughs> That's the infuriating thing about all of this. There's where the problem lies. Aziga acknowledged the importance of antiretroviral therapy for his health, but expressed hesitancy due to fear of side effects, cost, and concerns about confidentiality. However, he confirmed that he started medication in February of 2005. Aziga stated that he's now more open about discussing sex and would be willing to disclose his HIV status to future partners. He believed he has evolved and no longer faces barriers that previously hindered him from revealing his status. While he admitted to not revealing his HIV status to the 11 victims, he didn't fully accept responsibility for infecting seven of them with the virus, including those that led to the deaths of SB and HC. He hinted at the possibility of racial bias influencing the jury's verdicts. At the hearing, Johnson Aziga apologized to his victims and their families. From the Globe and Mail, quote, I'm so sorry for what happened, he said. I wish I had the wisdom and the wherewithal to advise my partners of my HIV infection. 
Mr. Iziga suggested he has gained so much insight since his August 2003 arrest that he wants to share it and be part of the, quote, teaching process. I bring a wealth of experience and knowledge that would be beneficial to the public, he said. I will share my experience with them in the hopes they won't end up in my shoes of being the HIV poster boy. Even after he was ordered by public health to disclose his HIV-positive status to partners, Mr. Iziga did not tell the women with whom he was having unprotected sex. After his arrest, he told authorities the names of sexual partners he could remember, which he said Wednesday was, quote, in my own way, some kind of apology to the women. My arrest saved me as well as my partners because some went for testing once they heard that I had been arrested, Mr. Izika said. I had not deliberately infected women. End quote. So, okay, you're saying you didn't deliberately infect women, but you did deliberately not tell them. Yeah. So <laughs> just, so he's he's blocking it. He's not accepting it. Yeah. Doesn't make it right. No. I honestly don't think he had sex with people going, I'm going to intentionally give this to people. No, it, it's not like walking up with a gun and shooting at no. them. I think he just didn't somehow let it sink in. Hmm. Right? I don't know. Yeah. He really pisses me off, though. Justice Lofchick determined that Johnson Iziga should be labeled a dangerous offender. Lofchick's decision likely ensured that Johnson would remain in custody for his lifetime. The justice stated that when evaluating any promises made by Mr. Iziga, it's essential to recognize his prolonged history of deceit. The judge declared that such behavior poses a significant threat to society. According to HIVlegalnetwork.ca, in 2018, Canada's Attorney General at the time acknowledged the unfair criminalization of individuals with HIV. She instructed federal attorneys to refrain from prosecuting those with a suppressed HIV viral load. Additionally, she advised against prosecuting individuals who either used protection, adhered to their HIV treatment, or engaged only in oral sex, citing a negligible risk of transmission in such scenarios. However, the challenge of HIV criminalization persists. The guidance is limited to federal prosecutors overseeing cases in Canada's three territories. Despite global recommendations to restrict HIV-related prosecutions to intentional transmission cases, many living with HIV in Canada still face potential unfair legal action. This includes situations where there's no proven transmission or even a minimal risk of it. In June 2019, a report titled The Criminalization of HIV Nondisclosure in Canada was released by the House of Commons Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights. This report offers vital suggestions to narrow the overly broad and scientifically unsupported application of criminal law against those with HIV. Notably, it recommends excluding HIV nondisclosure from sexual assault laws and restricting legal actions to cases with actual transmission claims. Advocates for those with HIV urged the government to heed these suggestions, emphasizing the need for consultations with HIV legal and community specialists to refine the criminal code. The goal is to limit legal actions to only those cases involving deliberate transmission. And I think that's a big step forward and the right thing to do. You've got here written, think before calling the police. Yeah, so there is actually a campaign uh, by AIDS Action now, mm -hmm. um, in the gay community that um, 
did a think before you call the police campaign. Okay. Because because it was realized that some people were who didn't get HIV were calling the police to get back at exes. Okay. Who were HIV positive and claiming that they didn't know. Oh wow. Yeah, and then so so people are being arrested and and jailed with assault even though nobody got HIV. Okay. People are strange, aren't they, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> I think limiting to to deliberate transmission where people actually get HIV is is the only thing you can do. Putting people in jail because of something that could have happened is is a very messy can of worms. It's a bit of a slippery slope, really. It's a very slippery slope. Aziga appealed his convictions, and in January 2023, Ontario's highest court reversed the two murder convictions against him. The Court of Appeal decided that Aziga should be found guilty of manslaughter rather than first-degree murder, which means he can now apply for parole. However, it's uncertain he'll be granted that. According to the Toronto Star, the court's decision was influenced by the trial judge's inadequate guidance to the jury about Aziga's intent to commit murder. In addition to his murder charges, Aziga was convicted on multiple counts of aggravated sexual assault. However, that the top court overturned two of these convictions due to errors in jury instructions and called for a new trial on these counts. Despite these changes, Aziga's designation as a dangerous offender given in 2011 was upheld, which comes with an indefinite prison term. Just as David Pacioco of the appeal panel stated that Aziga's actions were grave and he deceived these women for his own pleasure, fully aware of the risks. Quote, the evidence confirmed that Mr. Aziga showed narcissistic and paranoid behavior and had demonstrated little remorse for his conduct, Pachioko wrote. Instead of accepting responsibility, he painted himself as a victim who has been demonized and ostracized, end quote. The Crown, recognizing the judge's mistakes, proposed replacing the murder convictions with manslaughter. So is, do you think they got it right in this case? Is manslaughter the right sort of yeah. decision. I think that's probably fair. Yeah, because murder requires intent. You had to have wanted to kill the person. You had to have intended to kill the person to be a murderer. Well, I just, let me do a little, Canada's weird, Mike. Yeah. I, I mentioned this to you before. So you have people like Carla Homolka. Yeah. Right? Who who's been out of jail for a very long time. Yeah. Who, hel who helped rape and murder girls. Yes right intentionally intentionally mm -hmm. plotted it yes out of jail while this people that did this are still in jail i yeah. mean there's there's something wrong i'm sorry yeah it's interesting and he's still a dangerous offender as well so that's that's another thing that's another whole can of worms don't get me wrong like i'm taking like a 10,000 foot view of all of this sure yeah i think he's a dick yeah, yeah, for sure. But my worry, we just have to be careful that we don't panic about these things. We don't use this one case to paint everybody with that same brush. Yeah. The HIV Justice Network reviewed the decision and concluded in part, quote, Regrettably, the Court of Appeals decision in this case leaves the door open to the possibility of criminal conviction based on the extremely unlikely possibility of transmission of HIV posed by unprotected oral penetration alone, if a jury is properly instructed. 
as well, the court could have gone further in its analysis, but it disappointingly declined to direct trial judges to give comprehensive jury instructions in cases arising from alleged HIV transmission, which are sensitive to the need to combat misconceptions about the risk of HIV transmission and which acknowledge the real-world context and pressures that contribute to non-disclosure, end quote. Approximately 200 people have been prosecuted for alleged HIV non-disclosure in Canada. Ontario is at the forefront globally in excessively criminalizing the non-disclosure of HIV status. This over-criminalization is evident in the high number of prosecutions, even in cases where there was no transmission or very low risk of transmission. Such legal actions not only stigmatize and disproportionately impact those living with HIV, but also undermine public health efforts. Advocates argue that the current approach is outdated and inconsistent with the latest scientific understanding of HIV transmission risks. They call for a more balanced and evidence-based approach to the issue. So you had something you wanted to point out about uh, the 200 people. Yeah, uh, two, two, two women yep. uh, are in that, that list, both women of color. So there's only two women, and they are both women of color. Yeah. That's interesting and telling. Can I add something else here? Sure. Uh, part of the issue is that now they're trying to be a little bit more scientific-based, and they're talking about the level of viral load, right? So so essentially, if you have no viral load, it's 99%. You can't pass it on. Mm -hmm. But you have this falling-apart healthcare system, where, and especially uh, in marginalized communities that can't get blood tested. Right. Right? So, so they're putting a weird burden on people. It's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. According to HIVjustice.net, quote, there are some serious injustices taking place right now, said Ryan Peck, executive director of the HIV and AIDS Legal Clinic in Ontario. People living with HIV are being criminalized for engaging in behaviors that should not be criminal. And to make it worse, people living with HIV are being charged, prosecuted, and convicted of aggravated sexual assault. As of this writing, as far as we know, Johnston Aziga remains behind bars. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 283, Private Acts and Public Health, HIV Non-Disclosure in Canada. That's right, it's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. So let's go ahead with voicemails. Here is our first one. Hi, how's it going? My name is Reddy. I'm originally from Canada, but now I live in Israel. Just wanted to say that I just heard about your, your podcast like three weeks ago, and I'm already at episode 200. <laughs> um, you guys are amazing. Um, really informative, super thoughtful. Uh, so thanks. Uh, getting to hear about Canada's bit darker side is super intense. <laughs> um, but the thoughtfulness that you guys bring to the show is really amazing. So thank you, and have a great day, night, year. Thanks. Well, there you go. Uh, that was interesting. So I think that's our first call from Israel. And I've been 
wanting to visit Tel Aviv for so long, and now I she's just reminded me that I really want to check out. Tel, I have friends in Tel Aviv. Oh, do you? Uh, yeah, and I want to go. And um, actually, with my business, I, I I sell Israel's number one cannabis strain. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Grown in Canada, sold in Israel. There you go. Oh, so what do you think that she does there in Israel, Matthew? Very interesting place to live. I think she's a time travel ethicist. Really? Yeah, so she specializes in the complex ethical considerations sub surrounding time travel. Okay. And it advises governments and organizations on, on consequences of altering history. I think someone's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it, and, and, and that's what she's doing. All right, let's listen to our second voicemail. Hey, gentlemen, this is Rob calling from Lethbridge, uh, Alberta. And uh, I know you reported that there may be nuclear missile silos here. No, that's uh, about 80 miles south, or let's say 100-some kilometers south in the United States. Uh, anyways, you guys do just a bang-up job. You guys are the ultimate gay straight alliance. I really do love you guys, and uh, keep up the outstanding work. Um, uh, we love you, and there's a lot of us out here. You guys have a great one, and go uh, shit in your hat, All righty. So there we, we have someone from Lethbridge telling us to go shit in our hats. And, and I don't recall saying that there were actual missile silos in Lethbridge, but maybe I did. I don't recall that. Whenever I hear Lethbridge, I, I think uh, she's just a big bone gal from southern Alberta. Or Katie Lang. Katie Lang. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I love Katie Lang. Gay Straight Alliance. Well, I don't know. Who's he? Who's he to call me straight anyway? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't come out as straight. That's the thing. You, you have to be getting some to be something, am I? <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so what do you think Rob does there in Lethbridge beside correct us? <laughs> what does Rob do in Lethbridge? Yeah. I think he's the president of the Katie Lang fan club. Why not? He's a he's a big bone boy from Southern Alberta. I, I've got this constant craving that I can't explain. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. Hallelujah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Let's move on to our next one. Hi, it's Mackenzie. I started listening to your show about a year ago. This is the first time I'm calling in, and I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, I'm from Kelowna, BC, um, pretty close by to you guys, um, but go shit in your hat. That's all I have to say. <laughs> have a great day. <laughs> so she's up there in Kelowna. Hopefully she is not one of those people who have been evacuated at this point. Yes. Um, uh, so you'll be hearing this a few weeks after, but yeah, was, Kelowna was on fire yesterday Yeah, and today. So we, we hope you're safe. So what do you think she does up there in Kelowna that uh, isn't related to firefighting? Uh, she's the Ogopogo whisperer. Oh, wow. So what does she whisper to Ogopogo about, specifically, Matthew? Stay hidden. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to come out right now. <laughs> this is not a good time. Now is not the right time for your coming out party. No, no. Stay hidden, Ogopogo. Probably the best thing. All right, uh, and here's our fourth and final voicemail this week. Hi, it's Carrie 
from Wetaskiwin. Um, I'd like to say thank you for all your podcasts. I love them all. <laughs> and yes, I will take shit in my hat. <laughs> um, I would like to donate, donate to you guys. That was fuck up. But <laughs> um, thank you for all you do. And I will always be here listening. Well, thank you very much. Oh, that's sweet. Sound like a late night call. Maybe a little what? little late night calling. We we like late night calls. What do you think that person does for a living, Matthew? Nighthawk. Nighthawk. What is a nighthawk? Jesus just travels around at night and does night things. Okay. <laughs> just does night things. Like what? Peeking into windows and things like that or No, just sort of have you ever toured around in a car at like four in the morning, Mike? Yes. And and just had the streets are empty. Yeah, just went for a drive. Yeah, street. She just enjoys that sort of life. Okay, well that makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week's voicemails. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. So we've got one patron this week, and her name is Rachel McDonald, and she's from Thompson, Manitoba. Thompson, Manitoba. Thank you, Rachel. Um, that's my sister's name, Rachel, so you must be a cool person if you have the same name as my sister. Uh, what does Rachel do up there in Thompson, Manitoba, Matthew? Is Thompson pretty far up? Uh, yeah, it's pretty far north. So she she gets a good view of the night sky. Mm -hmm. So she she's a cosmic cartographer. Wow, wow! Yeah. So she essentially makes maps of the night sky because up there they can see if a star suddenly appears before almost anywhere else. Why do birds suddenly appear every time that you're near? <laughs> because I'm special. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, that is that for patrons and donut money donors. We didn't have any donut money donors this week, but that's okay. Uh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm anyway. Yeah. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going you can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for this episode of Dark Poutine. So until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.